Section 3 of Cambridge Medieval History, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Cambridge Medieval History, Volume 1, Section 3. Constantine and His City, by H. M. Guatkin. Constantine kept his Vincenalia at Rome in the summer of 326. It was an unhappy visit even if the domestic tragedy had already taken place. Rome was the focus of heathenism and of Roman pride. She expected to see her sovereigns at the ceremonies, and to treat them with something of republican familiarity. Constantine scandalized her with his eastern pomp, and gave deep offense to the senate and people by refusing to join the immemorial procession of the Knights of Rome to the capital. When he left the city in September, he left it forever. Rome, indeed, had long ceased to be a good capital. It was too far from the frontier for military purposes. Too full of republican survivals for such sultans as the emperor had now become. Too heathen for Christian Caesars. So Maximian held his court at Milan, while Diocletian gradually shifted his chief resort eastward from Sirmium to Nicomedia. There were many signs now that the seat of empire ought to be somewhere near the Bosphorus, the chief dangers had always come from the Danube and the Euphrates, and about the Bosphorus was the only point which commanded both. If these were watched by the emperor himself, the Rhine might be left in charge of a Caesar. This was much the better course for the present. But in the long run, the problem was insoluble. The Rhine and the Danube might be guarded, or the Danube and the Euphrates, but now that Rome had failed to make a solid nation of her empire, she could not permanently guard all three together. Sooner or later it must come to a choice between the Rhine and the Euphrates, between Italy and Greece, between Europe and Asia. Constantine is not likely to have seen clearly all this, but he did see that he commanded more important countries from the Bosphorus than he could from Rome or Milan. These might control the Latin West and the Upper Danube, but at the Bosphorus he had at his feet the Greek world from Taurus to the Balkans, flanked northward by the warlike peoples of Illyricum, and eastward by the great barbarian fringe of Egypt, Syria, and Armenia, reaching from the Caucasus to the cataracts of the Nile. Nobody could yet foresee that by the seventh century nothing but the Greek world would be left. But where precisely was the new capital to be placed? Nicomedia would have been Diocletian's city, not Constantine's, and in any case it lay at the far end of a gulf, some fifty miles from the main line of traffic. Constantine may at one time have dreamed of his own birthplace, Nisus, or of Sardica, and at another he began buildings on the site of Troy, before he fixed upon the matchless position of Byzantium. Europe and Asia are separated by the broad expanses of the Euxine and Aegean seas, together stretching nearly a thousand miles from the Crimea to the mountains of Crete and in ancient times almost fringed round with Greek cities. It is not at all a land of the vine and the olive, even in Aegean waters, for the Russian wind sweeps over the whole region, except in sheltered parts, as where Trezibon is protected by the Caucasus, Philippi by the Rodope, or Sparta by Tegetus, or where Ionia hides behind the Mysian Olympus and the Trojan Ida. For all its heat in summer, Constantinople is quite as cold in winter as London, and the western points of the Black Sea are more cumbered with ice than the north of Norway. 
but the Aegean and the Eusian are not a single broad sheet of water. In the narrows between them, the coasts of Europe and Asia draw so close together that we can sail for more than two hundred miles in full view of both continents. Leaving the warm south behind at Lesbos, Mytilene, we pass from the Aegean to the Propontis, Marmara, by the Hellespont, Dardanelles, a channel of some fifty miles in length to Gallipoli, and two or three miles broad, then a voyage of a hundred and forty miles through the more open waters of the Propontis brings us to the Bosphorus, which averages only three-quarters of a mile wide, and has a winding course of sixteen miles from Byzantium to the Cyanean rocks at the entrance of the Euxian. It follows that a city on the Propontis is protected north and south by the narrow passages of the Bosphorus and the Dardanelles, and that all traffic between the Aegean and the Euxian must pass its walls. Moreover, the Bosphorus lay more conveniently than the Dardanelles for the passage from Europe to Asia. Thus two of the chief trade routes of the Roman world crossed each other at Byzantium. The Megarians may have had some idea of these things when they colonized Chalcedon, B.C. 674, just outside the south end of the Bosphorus on the Asiatic side of the Propontis. But the side of Chalcedon has no special advantages, so that its founders became a proverb of blindness for overlooking the superb position of Byzantium across the water, which was not occupied till B.C. 657. At the south end of the Bosphorus, on the European side, a blunt triangle is formed by the Propontis and the Golden Horn, a deep inlet of the Bosphorus running seven miles to the northwest. On the rising ground between them was built the city of Byzantium. Small as its extent was in Greek times, it played a great part in history. Its command of the corn trade of the Euxian made it one of the most important strategic positions in the Greek world, so that its capture by Alexander, it had repulsed Philip, was one of the chief steps of his advance to empire. It formed an early alliance with the Romans, who freed it from its perpetual trouble with the barbarians of Thrace, whom neither peace nor war could keep quiet. Vespasian, A.D. 73, took away its privileges and threw it into the province of Thrace. In the civil wars of Septimius Severus, it took the side of Pisinius Niger and held out for two years after Niger's overthrow at Issus in 194. Severus destroyed its walls and made it a subject village of Perenthus. Caracalla made it a city again, but it was sacked afresh by Gallienus. Meanwhile, the Gothic Vikings came sailing past its ruined walls to spread terror all over the Aegean and to the shores of Italy. Under the Illyrian emperors, it was fortified again. Even then it was taken first by Maximum Daza, and then by Constantine in the first Licinian War, so that its full significance only came out in the second. Licinius was a good general, and pivoted the whole war upon it after his defeat at Hadraniopol. He might have held his ground indefinitely if the destruction of his fleet in the Hellespont had not driven him from Byzantium. The lesson was not lost on Constantine. He began the work some time after his visit to Rome, and pushed it forward with impatience. He traced his walls to form a base two and a half miles from the apex of the triangle. Byzantium stood on a single hill, but it took in five, and his successors counted seven, according to the number of hills of Rome. The marketplace was on the second hill, where his camp had been during the siege. He erected great buildings and gathered works of art from all parts to adorn it. 
the temples of byzantium remained though they were overshadowed by the great cathedral of the twelve apostles some heathen ceremonies also were used for constantinople was the last and greatest colony of rome and for centuries retained the flavor of a latin city he gave it a senate also and brought over many of the senators of rome to be senators of the new rome for such was its official title though it has always been known as the city of constantine the northmen called it simply miklagard the great city it never had much in the way of amphitheater or beast fights amusement more christian and humane were provided by a circus and horse races its corn largesses were like those of rome and the corn of egypt was diverted to its use leaving that of sicily and africa for rome the new rome stood next to the old in rank and dignity being separated from the province of europa and governed by proconsuls till it received a prefectus urbi like rome in three fifty nine the bishop also soon shook off his dependence on perinthus and was recognized as standing next to the bishop of rome because constantinople is new rome by the council of three eighty one this ousted alexandria from the second place and the jealousy thereupon arising had important ecclesiastical consequences the work was complete so far as the hasty building would allow by the spring of three thirty and eleven may of that year is the official date for the foundation of constantinople it would be hard to overestimate the strength given to the empire by the new capital so long as the romans held the sea the city was impregnable if it was attacked on one side it could draw supplies from the other and when it was attacked on both sides in 628, Persians and Avars could not join hands across the Bosphorus. Even when the command of the sea was lost, it still remained a fortress of uncommon strength. So stood Constantinople for more than a thousand years. Goths and Avars, Persians and Saracens, Bulgarians and Russians, dashed in vain upon its walls, and even the Turks failed more than once was often enough taken in civil war by help from within but no foreign enemy ever stormed its walls till the fourth crusade a d twelve o four the arian controversy first made it clear that the heart of the empire was in the greek world or more precisely in asiatic greece between the taurus and the bosphorus and of the greek world constantinople was the natural capital it did not however at once become the regular residence of the emperors Constantine himself died in a suburb of Nicomedia. Constantius led a wandering life. Jovian never reached the city, and Valens in his later years avoided it. Theodosius was the first emperor who made it his usual residence, but the commercial supremacy of Constantinople was assured from the outset. The center of gravity of Asia Minor had shifted northward since the first century, and the Bosphorus gave an easier passage to Europe than the Aegean. So the roads which had converged on Ephesus now converged on Constantinople. It dominated the Greek world, and the Greek world was the solid part of the empire which resisted all attacks for ages. The loss was more apparent than real when first the Slavic lands were torn away, then Syria and Egypt, and lastly Sicily and Italy. The empire was never struck in any vital part till the seljuks rooted out greek civilization from the highland of asia minor in the eleventh century even after that it was still a conquering power under the comnenians and the house of lascaris and its fate was never hopeless till its last firm ground in asia was destroyed by the corrupt and selfish policy of michael palaeologus
We know little of Constantine's declining years, except that they were generally years of peace. The civil wars were ended at Chrysopolis. Now there was not even a pretender, unless we count as such, Caloceras, the camel-driver in Cyprus, who was put down without much difficulty, and duly burned in the marketplace of Tarsus. 335. If the Rhine was not entirely quiet, the troubles there were not serious. The Jews, to be sure, were never loyal, and the Christian empire had already shown marked hostility to them. A rising mentioned only by Chrysostom is most likely a legend, but there may have been already some signs of the great outbreak put down by Ursienus in 352. However, upon the whole there was peace. The old emperor never again took the field in person. His last war was with the Goths, and that was conducted by the younger Constantine. On a broad view, the legions of the Danube faced the Germans in its upper course, and the Goths lower down, with the Sarmatians between them. In each of these names stand for sundry tribes and groups of tribes, whose mutual enmities were diligently fostered by the policy of Rome. In 331 the Sarmatians and the Vandals had somehow got mixed up together, and suffered a great defeat from the Goths. They asked Constantine for help, and he was very willing to check the growth of the Gothic power. Araric, the Gothic king, replied by carrying the war into the Roman province of Moesia, from which he was driven out with heavy loss. The younger Constantine gained a great victory over him, 20 April 332, and when peace was made, the Goths returned to their old position as servants and allies of Rome. But when the Sarmatians themselves made inroads on Roman territory, Constantine left them to their fate. They were soon in difficulties with Geberic, the new Gothic king, and with their own slaves, the Limangantes, who drove them out of their country. Some fled to the Quati, some found refuge among the Gothic tribes, but 300,000 of them sought shelter in the empire and were given lands by Constantine, chiefly in Pannonia. The most interesting circumstance of the Gothic War is the help which Constantine received from Cherson, the last of the Greek republics. It stood where Sebastopol now stands. The story is told only by Constantine poor Phyrogeniatus, 911 through 959, but the learned emperor was an excellent antiquarian and used original authorities. Cherson and the Goths were old enemies, Rome and Cherson old allies. The Republic decided for war, and its first magistrate, Diogenes, struck a decisive blow by attacking the rear of the Goths. Cherson received a rich reward from Constantine, and remained in generally friendly relations to the empire till its annexation in 829, and even till its capture by the Russians in 988. The settlement of the Danube was the last of Constantine's great services to the empire. The Edict of Milan had removed the standing danger of Christian disaffection in the East. The defeat of Licinius had put an end to the civil wars. The reform of the administration completed Diocletian's work of reducing the army to permanent obedience. The Council of Nicaea had secured the active alliance of the Christian churches. The foundation of Constantinople made the seat of power safe for centuries, and now the consolidation of the northern frontier seemed to enlist all the most dangerous enemies of Rome in her defense. The empire gained 300,000 settlers for the waste of the Gothic march, and a firm peace of more than 30 years with the greatest of the northern nations. Henceforth the Rhine was guarded by the Franks, the Danube covered by the Goths, and the Euphrates flanked by the Christian kingdom of Armenia. 
The empire was already dangerously dependent on barbarian help inside and outside its frontiers, but the Roman peace never seemed more secure than when the skillful policy of Constantine had formed its chief barbarian enemies into a covering ring of friendly client states. At all events, the years of peace were not a time of healthful recovery. The empire had not gained strength in the long peace of the Antonines, and it had gone a long way downhill since the second century. When Diocletian came to the throne in 284, he found three great problems before him. The first was military, how to stop the continual mutinies which cut off the emperors before they could do their work. This he solved, though at the cost of leaving behind him a period of civil war. The second was religious, how to deal with the Christians. Diocletian was wrong on this, and left his mistake to be repaired by Constantine. The third and hardest was mainly economic, to restore the dwindled agriculture, commerce, and population of the empire. On this Diocletian and Constantine went wrong together. They not only failed to cure the evil, but greatly increased it. Not much was gained by remitting taxes that could not be paid, and settling barbarian colonists and barbarian serfs in the wasted provinces. Serious economic difficulties have moral causes, and there was no radical cure short of a complete change in the temper of society. Yet much might have been done by a permanent reduction of taxation, and a reform of its incidents and of the methods of collection. Instead of this, the machinery of government, and its expense, was greatly increased. The army had to be held in check by courts of oriental splendor in a vast establishment of corrupt officials. We can see the growth of officialism even in the language. If we compare the Latin words in Athanasius with those in the New Testament, so heavier taxes had to be levied from a smaller and poorer population. Taxation under the empire had never been light. In the third century it grew heavy. Under Diocletian it was crushing and in the later years of Constantine the burden was further increased by the enormous expenditure which built up the new capital, like the city in a fairy tale. We are within sight of the time when the whole policy of the government was dictated by dire financial need. We have already reached a state of things like that we see in Russia. The strongest of the emperors had never been able to put down brigandage, and now disorder was rampant in the mountains, and often elsewhere. The great army of officials was all-powerful for oppression, and very little controlled by the emperor. He might displace an official at a moment's notice, or deliver him to the avenging flames, but he could enforce no reform against the passive resistance of the officials and the landowners, so things drifted on from bad to worse. Nor can we doubt that Constantine himself grew slacker in the years of peace. Nature had richly gifted him with sound health, strong limbs, and a stately presence. His energy was untiring, his observation keen, his decision quick. He was a splendid soldier and the best general since Aurelian. If he had no learned education, he was not without interest in literature, and in practical statesmanship he may fairly rank with Diocletian. His general humanity stands out clear in his laws, for no emperor ever did more for the slave, the foundling, and the oppressed. If he began by giving the Frankish kings to the beast, he went on, 325, to forbid the games of the amphitheatre. In private life he was chaste and sober, moderate and pleasant, yet he was given to raillery, and his nearest friends could not entirely trust him. His ambition was great, and he was very susceptible to flattery. So freely was it ministered to him that he sometimes had to check it himself. 
but in his later years he was more or less influenced by unworthy favorites as oblivious and sopater seem to have been no doubt his christianity is of itself an offense to zosimus and julian so that we may discount their charges of sloth and luxury but on the whole the judgment of eutropius would seem impartial that constantine was a match for the best emperors in the early part of his reign and at its end no more than average as constantine had won the empire so now he had to dispose of it constantine constantius and constans his three sons by fausta were born in 316 317 320 and received the title of caesar in 317 323 and 333 in 335 their inheritance was marked out constantine was to have the gaulish prefecture constantius the eastern constans the italian and illyrian this is the partition actually made after the emperor's death but for the present it was complicated by some obscure transactions constantine had made honorable provision for his half-brothers delmatius and julius constantius the sons of theodora and they never gave him political trouble of their sisters he married constantia to licinius anastasia to bassinius and nepotianus of whom the second certainly was a great roman noble so that they too suffered no disparagement Basilina also, the wife of Julius Constantius and mother of the Emperor Julian, belonged to the great Anasian family. Now Delmatius left two sons, Delmatius and Hannibalianus. Of these Delmatius must have been a man of mark, for he held the high office of Magister Militum, and was made Caesar in 335, while Hannibalianus was the husband of Constantine's daughter Constantia but they had no proper claim to any share in the secession, and we do not know why they were given it. There may have been parties in the palace, and if so, Ablabius was likely to have had a share in the matter, for he was put to death along with them in the massacre which followed Constantine's death. Certain it is that shares were carved out for them from the inheritance of their cousins. Delmatius was to have the Gothic march, while Hannibalianus received Pontus, with the astonishing title of Rex Regum, for no Roman since the Tarquins had ever borne the name of king. The strange title may point to some design upon Armenia, for the whole eastern question of the day was raised when Persia threatened war. Four emperors in the third century had met with disaster on the Persian frontier, but there had been forty years of peace since the victory of Galerius in 297. The empire gained Mesopotamia to the Aboras, and the five provinces which covered the southern slopes of the Armenian mountains, and in Armenia itself Roman supremacy was fully recognized by its great king Tiridates, 287-314. If his adoption of Christianity led to a short war with Maximin Daza, it only drew Armenia closer to Constantine. But if the royal house was Christian, and leaned on rome there was a large heathen party which looked to persia and persian was an aggressive power under sabor the second three o nine through three eighty a vigorous persecution of christians was carried on and war with rome was only a question of time sapor demanded back the five provinces and attacked mesopotamia while a revolution in the palace threw armenia into his hands how much of this was done during constantine's lifetime is more than we can say 
but at all events a Persian war was plain in sight by the spring of 337, and a war with Persia was too serious a matter to be left to Caesar's like a Frankish foray or a Gothic inroad, so the old emperor prepared to take the field in person. He never set out. Constantine fell sick soon after Easter, and when the sickness grew upon him, he took up his abode at Ancyrona, a suburb of Nicomedia. As his end drew near, he received the imposition of hands, for up to that time he had not been even a catechumen. He then applied for baptism, explaining that he had hoped some day to receive it in the waters of the Jordan, like the Lord himself. After the ceremony, he laid aside the purple and passed away in stainless white, 22 May 337. As all his sons were absent, the government was carried on for three months in the dead emperor's name, till they had made their arrangements, and the soldiers had slaughtered almost the entire house of Theodora. Constantine was buried on the spot he himself marked out in the cathedral of the Twelve Apostles, in his own imperial city. The Greek church still calls him his apostolos, an equal of the apostles. End of section 3